The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. We're going to be in Mark's Gospel again. We're going to be in chapter 6. We're going to look at the, um, it's going to sound worse than it is, we're going to look at the death of John the Baptist. If you will, join me in a word of prayer. Father, I just want to lift up those who are joining us online as well as those who are here. Um, I know there's sniffles and maybe a little coughing here and there. I pray that you would be with those who aren't 100%, um, maybe fighting something. Pray, uh, Jesus, for you to touch them, uh, to bring healing to them, uh, to be with uh, family. Uh, pray, Lord, that you would uh, be with us tonight as we uh, really look at a contrast of two men uh, in our Bible study. And uh, so, Lord God, we pray that you would be with us. Uh, we pray that you would encourage those who um, have, have lost a loved one. And, uh, Lord, we just come into the holidays it can be, can be challenging. But, Lord, pray that you'd help them heal. And, uh, Lord, each and every time they struggle uh, in remembering, Lord, that they would, uh, they would turn to you for comfort. You are the God of all comfort, and we thank you for that. In your name we pray. Amen. And so we're going to look at our Bible study here, but I wanted to remind you that on uh, Sunday, January uh, the 22nd, at our second service on Sunday, we're going to begin grief share. And so if you know of anybody who's lost a loved one, uh, it could have been recent or, you know, maybe even a couple of years ago, and they're still struggling with that, encouraged to have you, um, encourage them to look online, to register for that, be a part of that. It's a great source of healing. She had had one of those weeks, I don't know if you've ever had them, but this lady had had one of those weeks where at work was extremely challenging. It had been really, really hard. And so um, on Friday, she decided that as she was getting, going to her car and preparing to leave, she had quite a commute to get home, um, that she would stop by her favorite uh, uh, fast food restaurant and pick up, pick up a beverage, a carbonated beverage. And so she walks into and she noticed that the the lobby was a little more full uh, than it usually is, so she waited in line with her $5 bill. She got to the counter. The, the young person behind the counter recognized her and knew exactly what she would order. She would order a large drink with a little bit of ice. For her, the, the way the uh, Coke came out of the dispenser was cold enough, but she just wanted a little bit of ice to stay with her for the drive home. She would want half Coke and half Diet Coke blending, a mixture. I know I can see on some of your faces that doesn't work for you, uh, but there is a logic behind it. And as she had her, her money in hand and was prepared to uh, you know, receive her drink and then hit the road, she turned to see who was in line uh, behind her, and it was Brad Pitt. Um, and so immediately she, you know, she, she lost her capability to breathe, certainly to speak, um, but to, to breathe. As a matter of fact, later she would say that as she looked into his blue eyes, her knees buckled. She wouldn't admit that to anybody else, but that's what happened. She quickly turned around, took her beverage, handed, handed the money to the, to the person behind the counter, waited for her change, and then walked out as quickly as she could. Well, when she arrived on the sidewalk, she realized that she didn't have her drink with her. And so she knew that she, she wanted it and she needed it, so she went to return to the lobby to get her drink. And as she was coming back into the lobby, Mr. Pitt was exiting, and, and she stammered a little bit. She goes, I, 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 I forgot my drink. And he was the reason she forgot her drink. And he goes, no, ma'am, you didn't. You put it in your purse with your change. 
to meet somebody unexpectedly who would startle you in such a way. I want you to think about this, that one day you and I will meet Jesus. One day you and I, either either we will go to be with him or he will come to be with us. Now listen, and we will forget everything of this life. We will forget those things that are good things and, and right things, and yet they dominate our lives. But when we see him, the scripture said we will become like him. And all of this, I am quite sure, even your half and half Coke and Diet Coke, you'll never remember again. My friends, when we come to church, we come to be with Jesus. We come to be with him. We come to experience him with others. We come to see him. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but it was a, a pleasure to have Kayla return. She had been gone for a little while, and it was good to see her, and obviously the worship is great. But I want you to think about when we come to church, we are with him. And yes, it is by eyes of faith we have the capability to, to see him. And even if it's for a half, a, a half, a, a, you know, half an hour or so, we are recalibrated, we are refocused on him as we forget the things of this world. I don't call that escapism. I call that a reality check. So we have, uh, in, for our Bible study tonight, if you have your notes with you, the title of our Bible study is When Silence Speaks. When Silence Speaks, When It Communicates. And again, we're going to be in Mark's Gospel, chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, when silence speaks. Our passage is going to consider the lives of two very different men, maybe polar opposites, different ends of the spectrum of life. As would be expected when comparing John the Baptist with Herod Antipas, the prophet overshadows the ruler. The prophet of God overshadows this very powerful individual, this powerful man. Jesus honored John in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, verse 11. Listen to these words where Jesus says truly. And when you say truly, when you see the word truly in your Bible, it's like putting an exclamation mark at the beginning of the sentence instead of at the end of the sentence. But Jesus says, truly I say to you, among those who are born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. No one greater. The world in which we live, greatness is a big deal to people, to some people. Not all people, I recognize that, I realize that. But to some people, being great is a really, really big deal. and, and although it may be extreme, it is something that some people have dedicated their life to, to become great, to become known. I have friends who recently went to Egypt, like right before the holidays, and they were talking about the runes that were left behind of these pharaohs and of these kings. Greatness, an attempt to maintain greatness even past their death. But just for a moment, I want you to think about this. Even though John's ministry ended or concluded 400 years of divine silence. His platform, if you will, will, was obscurity. John lived and ministered in the desert, in the wilderness. We hear no reference of him ever being in Jerusalem or at the center 
of, of Israel. And John's message was, was, his purpose was to be a voice, to, to be a prophetic voice, to be God's voice, if you will, calling people to repentance. And stop and think about what that is. He, people came to him, and he would preach against various sins, again, in the spirit of a prophet, right out of the Old Testament. And then to reinforce what he was calling them to do, he required them to be baptized, One of the scholars I read commenting on John's ministry said that it wasn't uncommon for as people were going into the water for them to be confessing their sins, to come before the Baptist, to be immersed in water, to come up out of the water, a very public scene. I think it's important for us to know that in the mind of a Jew, baptism was reserved for a Gentile who would be converting to Judaism. It wasn't for a Jew. So just stop and think about who John's speaking to, who he's calling to repentance, and who he's calling to be baptized. It's true that the Jews had many washings. Remember when Jesus turned water into wine, it said of the pots that were present at the the wedding that they were there for cleansing, for ceremonial cleansing. But baptism? So he ministered in obscurity. And he called a nation to repent from their sins in preparation for Messiah. There was no miracle attributed to John, unlike Jesus. Again, his message, his his coming, his presence, and his message signaled Jesus' coming. In John 1.29, you're familiar with this verse. It said of John that he saw Jesus coming toward him. And he said to those around him, Behold, the Lamb of God, messianic title, referring to how Jesus would do the following, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John's ministry was marked by humility. Of Jesus, John said in John 3, John's Gospel, not John the Baptist, but John said in John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 30, He must increase and I must decrease. He knew his place. He knew his role. Herod, on the other hand, was a conflicted man. And I think we'll see that tonight. He was a conflicted ruler. He had what many people would have wanted, but his life was miserable. His life was complicated. I want you to think about someone who, despite knowing what is right, despite understanding, comprehending what is the right thing to do, He yielded himself to self-destructive desires. He gave his life to desires that would destroy him. In time, said impulses exchanged pleasure for torment. That is the life of two different men, John the Baptist and Herod Antipas. It might be helpful for you to know tonight that that that, that Herod... The word Herod was the family name of a dynasty who ruled first century Israel. In fact, in the New Testament, there are four different Herods, of which the Herod that we study tonight is mentioned the most. I want to go towards now, towards the end of Jesus' life, long after John's execution that we'll read of it tonight. When Jesus was in custody, he had been arrested, he had been tried before the Sanhedrin, and now he found himself before Pilate. He was in custody, and another politician faced a dilemma of his own. Knowing that Jesus was clearly innocent, 
Pilate looked for a way out. And conveniently, Herod was in town. Let me read to you from Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning in verse 6. Listen. It says, When Pilate heard this, that is, that Jesus was from Galilee, he asked whether the man, that is Christ, was, from, was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, that is, the Herod of our story tonight, he sent him over to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at that time. Verse 8. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. Stop and think about that for a minute. When Herod saw Jesus, when Jesus was delivered him, now let me remind you, at this point in time, he's already been beaten. Not by the Roman soldiers, but he's been beaten by the Sanhedrin. He's had his face spit upon. So when he saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him. He had wanted to see him for a long time. He had heard of him because he had heard of him. And listen to this. Again, this is telling as to who Herod is. And he was longing to see a sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. But he, Jesus, made no answer. Jesus, in front of Herod, refused to answer his questions. He remained silent. Matter of fact, you remember from Isaiah chapter 53, as a lamb is silent before his shears. So Jesus did not speak. Think about this. Herod interrogates Jesus. He was good at this. This is what he would do. However, Jesus remained silent. Jesus performed no sign or miracle to entertain the ruler. Jesus really gave him no time. Jesus did not plead for justice from Herod. As a matter of fact, he made no answer. Now, I might be wrong here. I'll be happy to admit that if I am. But I think sometimes the scene before us that I'm describing, I think sometimes this is what judgment looks like. I think sometimes judgment looks like God's silence, and in his silence, he speaks. I think that sometimes God allows man to go his own way. You see, man's heart can become so hard that he no longer senses the Spirit's conviction, and God refuses to speak. This is profound. It's a warning, to be sure. On the screen, you'll see the, the following. Herod silenced the voice of the desert prophet, resulting in God's refusal to speak to him. And this is one of the reasons that I think, and I know that those of you who are here at church on a Wednesday night or those of you who are joining us online, I know you long to hear through the Word of God, through the teaching of God's Word, through the study of God's Word, you long to hear God speak to you, and that's what He desires to do. I believe one of the great benefits of having the Holy Spirit is that He is our teacher, our instructor, that He helps us understand. I don't think we always get it the first time, at least I don't, but I know that as we patiently look into God's Word, that God gives instruction and understanding. But my point is, sometimes God's silence is a message and it speaks for you and for I and for others a warning. And so tonight in verses 14 through 29, we have the death of John the Baptist. We're going to break this up into to three different sections. In verses 14 through 16, we're going to look at Herod's guilt. And we're going to talk about guilt. Not only his guilt, we're going to talk about guilt a little bit in general. In verses 17 through 20, we're going to have Herod's dilemma. 
And then lastly, in verses 21 through 29, we're going to have Herod's oath. We're going to have Herod's oath. Well, let's begin with Herod's guilt. Verse 14. And Herod heard of it. Obviously, he's the ruler of, of the Galilee. He's, he's, the, he's the ruler uh, over this uh, specific geographical area, and so this is where Jesus was ministering. Herod heard of it. For Jesus' Jesus's name had, had become known. It was People were talking about the things that Jesus was doing. And some of them said, some of those who were talking about Jesus said, well, this is John the Baptist. He's been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. Verse 15 says, but others said, no, he's not John the Baptist. He's Elijah. And others said, no, he's the prophet, a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. Herod's guilt. An overshadowing thought that may escape us is that the coming of Elijah within the minds, within the minds of the people of the day, the coming, the coming of Elijah, the coming of the prophet was associated with God's judgment. They knew that when the prophet came, God would bring judgment. They were hoping that when the prophet came, that, that Messiah would come and that he would bring judgment and that he would drive the Romans out. When you think about judgment, think about God bringing justice to this earth. It, and, and many of the people in Israel were longing for this justice. When you think about justice, think about justice specifically for the powerless and the poor. Think too, justice and judgment being inseparable in the minds of Mark's readers in Rome. Explaining why Herod became jumpy when he heard of Jesus. And because of his guilt, his mind goes back to a time when he remembered that he had John the Baptist arrested. He had the voice of the prophet in the wilderness arrested, incarcerated, and he had him beheaded at his command, and at his command. We're told in both verses 14 and 16 that Herod heard news had come to him of Jesus. We're also told that what was highlighted about Jesus to Herod were miraculous powers. Now, one of the things that we're going to see that Herod was enamored with was power and position. I believe that the one of the reasons that Herod heard was the result of the apostles being sent out two by two. It was though, as we said last time, and I know it's been a while, but last time when we talked about him, is that his ministry expanded. The word went out. And so it, the word comes to Herod. Also know that Herod was no king. I know we, he's referred to as king in verse 14, but he was not a king, although he lobbied Rome for the title. He was a tetrarch, which literally means a ruler of the fourth, a ruler of the fourth of Israel. And he was useful to Rome for two things. He was useful to Rome for the collecting of taxes, and he was useful to Rome for the keeping of peace. And he would do both things with might and with physical power. Intimidation in Rome's mighty soldiers. Herod's life was grounded in superstition. 
Herod's life was motivated by fear, and like many, as we see here, it's rooted in guilt. When I was in high school, I wasn't a reader. I wish I could tell you that I was. I'm more of a reader now than I was then. But I remember one of the, one of the authors that I was required to read that I, I kind of had an affection for was uh, a gentleman named John Steinbeck. I don't know if you're familiar with him. I, I even read some of his books when I wasn't required to, which, which is pretty significant. But when he turned 58 years old, he was up in Salinas, up in, uh, on the coast, uh, northern coast of California, with the agriculture and everything, but when he turned 58 years old, he, he got into his pickup truck and he, he said to himself, I'm going to go visit different parts of the United States that I've written my books about, my stories about. He has short stories, books, novels. And, and, he, and he put together this trip in a, in a book himself, and it's called Travels with Charlie. If you want to know who Charlie was, Charlie was his uh, French poodle. So if you can picture John Steinbeck, his dog, and his pickup going down the road, travels with Charlie in search of America. Listen to this comment that he makes in the book. He says, I have never smuggled anything in my entire life. And then he asks, why? Why then do I feel in an easy sense of guilt on approaching a customs barrier? I don't know if you ever had that occasion. I know... Sometimes I don't travel anymore, but when I was in youth ministry, we would take a lot of missions trips, and we'd spend a lot of time in Israel. That was a big, big deal. And when I would come up to the, you know, hand over my passport and fill out some forms, I kind of had that same nervousness, you know. I know I was good. I know I didn't have anything in my backpack, but I kind of had that nervousness so I could relate with John Steinbeck. I don't know about some of you. I remember, too, that after I recently became a Christian in 1978, there were those times that a police car would go by and I would stop and think, should I be nervous? No, no, you're a Christian now. You don't have anything to be nervous about. But that general sense of I've done something wrong. We'll look a little bit at guilt now before we move on to the next point. In verse 16, immediately when Herod hears about John the uh, Jesus, he says this, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. He felt guilty because he was guilty. He carried guilt because he was guilty of taking John's life. Let me talk just a little bit about guilt. I believe that one of the reasons that Danny Ramos, I want to talk about you. You guys are great people. One of the reasons I feel guilt is because sometimes I intentionally do something that I know is wrong. I intentionally, willfully go a little bit over the speed limit. It causes me to look in the rearview mirror and make, kind of observe the vehicles that are coming up behind me. And my wife chuckles when I'm going down the road and I see an you know, officer over here off to the side and I slow way down. And she could feel the car slow down and she looks at me and she goes, ah, something's going on here. There was one time we were returning from Phoenix. I wanted to get home so bad. It's a little bit of a drive. I thoroughly enjoy it. But as I was, I was coming down from uh, up on top down towards Alpine, 
I didn't realize it, but the, the, a police officer informed me that I was doing 90 miles an hour. Now, I didn't, I didn't know it at the time, but he kind of holds up this gun and shows me the nine and the zero, and I pretty much said, yeah, thanks a lot. And, you know, but I feel guilty because I am guilty. We have that sense of something that's right and something that's wrong. To do wrong results in guilt. To not deal with guilt may even bring about fear, fear of judgment, of getting caught by a CHP officer. Now listen to this. For me anyways, relief or being released from guilt comes from my confessing my sin to God. When I confess my sin to the Lord, that guilt dissipates and I receive forgiveness. There's three things I want you to think about before we move on. Jesus died for sin. Oh, Danny, we all know that. Jesus died for your sin. The sin that you willfully commit, he died for that sin. The second thing I want you to think about is God currently sees you as forgiven. Even before you confess it, he sees you as forgiven. The third thing is that Jesus dying for your sin, God seeing you as forgiven, makes you dead to sin's guilt. Makes you dead to sin's guilt. On the screen you'll see Hebrews chapter 8 verse 12 where the writer of Hebrews says, Of the Lord, for I will be merciful to their iniquities. And listen to the second part. And I will remember their sins no more. That latter part, I will remember their sins no more, is a quote from Jeremiah 31, verse 34, that references the new covenant. You live in the new covenant. You live forgiven. If you've trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are forgiven, and God sees you as forgiven. We simply acknowledge our sin, and we are released from guilt. The second point here is Herod's dilemma, verses 17 through 20. For it was, verse 17, for it was Herod who had sent. Now we're going back in time. We're going back in time. For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife. He's not getting away with anything here. Each and every turn, Mark is telling us exactly what he had done because he had married her. For John had been saying, this is repeatedly, for John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias held a, had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. For Herod, Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and a holy man. If Herod knew that John was righteous, Herod fully understood that he was not because of his sin. And Herod also kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, yet he heard him gladly. I referenced earlier that Herod was enamored with power, and when he heard of Jesus, and he heard of the miracles, and he heard of the crowds. Now remember, one of the things that Herod would be required for from Rome was to keep the peace. The crowds would always make him nervous. But when he heard of Jesus, he was enamored with the power. 
He was also enamored with Herodias. Remember from our introduction when I said, despite knowing what is right, Herod yielded to self-destructive desires. Let me say one thing about power. I don't think power in and of itself is wrong. There's a lot of things in life that in and of themselves aren't wrong. Again, looking to the screen, we are given power to help others. We are given power to help others, not to serve ourselves. I, I, I was thinking about... Um, not this last Monday night, but the Monday night before when the young football player was injured, on, was injured on the field. I had been watching the game and was preparing to have dinner with my wife, Wanda. And Typically, I, I have dinner and with my wife and I watch what's going on, on on the game. Not too dialed into the game, but somewhat dialed in the game. And I saw him go down and, and I saw the reaction of the players on the field. That was uh, Damar Hamlin, the young uh, player for the Buffalo Bills. And by the response of the players, I knew that something was serious. And so I turned, I turned the television off and figured I'd come back to it afterwards. And Wanda said, why are you turning it off? I go, you know, this is an injury and it's bad and I don't, I'm going to wait. You know, after dinner, I'll turn it back on. Well, when I turned it back on, obviously it was, the game was postponed. Eventually it would be canceled. And wherever I turned, I noticed even on television, people were praying for him. Wanda and I, we, we, we have a time of prayer in the evening, and I remember praying for him. We have Tuesday morning prayer group here that, that meets at 7 a.m. in the bookstore, and, and we prayed for him there. And I remember even a, 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 one of the commentators, not, not from the game, but later one of the, the commentators stopped on national TV and prayed for him. And I had a sense, and I had a sense that this is an opportunity. And, and, and obviously he's recovered greatly, and, and I'm thankful for that. But, but the power of prayer, the power of God's people. I know that sometimes when we, we look around us, we think, well, you know, things aren't going well. And, and, and I understand that. But just stop and think that when tragedy struck, there were God's people People who have a reference point to God stopped and they prayed for him. And I'm so thankful that he's, he's on his well in his way to recovery. Verse, verse 18, back to the Bible study here. It speaks of John's fidelity to God's word. Even to his own hurt, even to his own hurt, he preaches. When he tells Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Get this, Herod wasn't even a Jew. And yet John looks at him, in spite of his position, and he said, you are in the wrong, you're sinning against God's moral law. On the screen you'll see the following. Telling someone the truth is the most loving thing we can do. Being truthful with somebody is the most loving thing we can do, but it doesn't always mean they will love you. So we look at Herod's dilemma with Herodias. The story is told of a, back in the day when we had buffets, I don't know, if you, I'm sure you remember them, 
Hometown, hometown buffet was my favorite when I was younger, and then I switched over to soup plantation. I guess a senior citizen discount didn't hurt. And the bowls for the uh, ice cream dispenser, had, they had run out of them, and so as this man came up to the dispenser, he noticed there was a line of young men, young, young boys that were waiting for their ice cream, and so they were standing there patiently waiting, and finally... You know, one of the employees brings freshly washed bowls, and he, he stacks them there, and I'm talking about a dilemma here. And so each, each of the young, you know, each of the little boys grabs there and begins to fill it up. And you know how we fill up ice cream, right? I mean, you, you got you to gotta have plenty of ice cream. And so they pile it up high, pile it up high, and then, you know, they put the sprinkles and the chocolate syrup. But the dilemma was that as they were making their way back to the table, the warmth of the bowl began to melt the ice cream. And as they looked down at their, at their bowl, it was pouring over the side and coming down their fingers. That's not a bad dilemma. I mean, you, when you're little and making a mess, it probably feels bad. But for an old man, that's absolutely, totally to be expected. But let's look at Herod's dilemma for just a moment before we move on. Herodias had a grudge against him, verse 19, against John, and wanted to put him to death. But she could not. Verse 20 tells us why. Because Herod feared John. The man who had the the most power in the moment feared the man of God. For Herod, lust meant living with Herodias' grudge. Putting John in prison was his attempt to temper her hatred, but it did not. There's more, and I find this verse perhaps one of the most interesting verses in this whole story. It says in verse 20, When he, Herod, heard him, heard John, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. It just seems like such a contradiction. Makes his life so complicated. Herod was greatly perplexed. Think that he was greatly distressed by by John's message of repentance. Yet, he was fascinated by the prophet. He was was fascinated by John. I would imagine that Herod would have went down into the prison there in his castle, and he would have engaged with John. He would have conversed with him. And John would have preached to him truth. John told him the truth. And Herod would stand there and maybe ask him questions, maybe interact. We don't have the details before us. And there was something in Herod, there was something in Herod that was both troubled and interested in what the prophet had to say. And I would say from the outside, we would say, John is in prison, Herod is free. But in reality, do you see that John was free because he lived and proclaimed the truth and Herod was incarcerated by his lust for power and for Herodias. I want you to think, too, that when Jesus stood before Pilate and eventually would stand before this Herod, that it wasn't Jesus who was on trial. It was Pilate and it was Herod that were found guilty by their sin. There's a book called The Lincoln Lawyer. I don't know if you're familiar with it. It was written by Michael Connolly. 
The main character is a shady attorney. I know, you have to use your imagination for that. His name was J. Michael Haller, and he was known for pretty much any amount of money representing those who were known to be guilty. And in the book, there's a quote that says, where Haller says, there is no client as scary as an innocent man. There is no client who is as scary as an innocent man because, let me tell you why, because that innocent man will reveal the guilt that's in you. Let's go ahead and wrap up with Herod's oath in verses 21. But an opportunity came when Herod, on his, on his birthday, gave a banquet or a party for three different groups, for its nobles, military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And then he vowed, or he swore an oath. He vowed to her, Whatever you ask me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, For what, shall I, what should I ask? And, he, and she said to her, The head of John the Baptist. And she came in immediately with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. Verse 26, notice. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oath, because he had sworn an oath publicly, and his guests, he had done it in front of his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. Verse 27, immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him while John was in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. Very grisly, very sad. Listen, very evil. Lastly, verse 29, and when his John's disciples heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Don't have time to go over it, but there's similarities between the way John dies and the way Jesus dies. But again, we don't have time. You'll understand me when I talk about a garden where God met with Adam and Eve, and yet it was present there, there was present a snake that told lies. You also understand when I speak of a paranoid king who heard from wise men that another king had been born a short distance away, and that king killed all the, all the infants, the male infants in the general area. You'll also understand when I t- speak of a disciple who would steal from a group's money bag and then sell his friend for 30 pieces of silver. You'll understand what I'm talking about. And I want you to think in verse 21, these individuals who do these things wait for an opportunity, as did Herodias, to do evil. There's a quote from C.S. Lewis in the book A Mind Awake, an anthology of C.S. Lewis, where Lewis says, good and evil increase at compound interest. That's why the little decisions we make every day are of infinite importance. Here we see what happens to a grudge that is nurtured in the heart of an offended woman, waiting for the right time at the right day. Herod has one too many drinks. As usual, his pride is on full display. An oath is spoken to impress others, 
and his power brings death. He tells the young lady, whatever you ask of me, I will give to you up to half of my kingdom. This was a proverb and a way of expressing Herod's pleasure with a seductive dance of the young lady. He claimed the right to give a portion of his kingdom while unable to rule his own desire. Coached by mom, the girl's request is made known. I want his head on a platter. Remember the serpent slandering God's character. Is God really good? Remember Herod the Great's murderous command to eliminate a threat to his throne. And lastly, remember Judas's kiss in Gethsemane. They all look the same. We're told in verse 26, the king was sorrowful. Sorrow follows sin. Just a couple more things and we'll be done. The teller of truth, that is John the Baptist, the prophet's voice no longer preached in the desert, but it was never silenced, as was Herodias's hope. For you see that his voice continues to preach today in the pages of Scripture. History tells us that the early Christians died as victors convinced of clinging to the hope of the resurrection. We might say that they died with their eyes looking heavenward, which reminds you and I to live with our eyes focused on the one who stands by heaven's throne. Now, you might not put your favorite beverage in your purse, but one day, the one who our hearts look towards will be revealed, and we will see him. From the book of Acts, and then I really will be done. Let me read to you in Acts chapter 7. But he, Stephen, full or under the, under the control of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. One day, with your eyes, you will see Jesus. One day you will see him. We see him now by faith. We look to him now by faith. We trust him today by faith. But there's coming a day where we will see him and we will be with him. And all that it is of this world, all that consumes us now, that which is good and that which is bad, it will fade away by the wayside. And you and I today and tonight and tomorrow, in those moments, we'll catch a glimpse of the one who is standing at the right hand of the throne, ready to receive a martyr into his presence. And for that, we rejoice. We're going to take communion together now. As a matter of fact, if you don't have your communion elements, please raise your hand and the ushers will bring it to you. Yeah, go ahead and raise your hand. Our Faithful ushers will bring it to you, and we will take it together. Thank you, guys. I appreciate it. There's somebody over here. There you go. So on the second Wednesday night of the, Wednesday of the month, we will take communion together. I want to read to you from Mark's Gospel, 
chapter 14. And it says, and as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, that is, um, thanking God for it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. That is, his disciples that were present there at the Passover. And he says this to them. He says, take, this is my body. This is the bread that he passed to them. This is my body. And he took a cup, probably a common, common cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said this to them, This is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Before we partake together, I want to just give you three things to think about. As we take this tonight, I want you to remember Jesus' death. I want you to remember Jesus' death. And it is by his death that you and I have the forgiveness of sins that we are relieved from any guilt of our own sin. The second thing I want you to remember is Jesus' life. Jesus' life was given so that we might be rescued, redeemed. And lastly, we remember Jesus' future return. He is coming to bring us home. He has not abandoned us. He has not left us. He will return to take us home. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our midweek revive service held Wednesday evenings. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.